Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me today on the Practical Stoic Podcast, and it will absolutely be worth it because today I've got a wonderful conversation that I had with none other than Charles Eisenstein. And I'm sure that many of you have heard of Charles before, but uh, for those of you who haven't, I'm going to read a little bit of information out about him for you, just so that you've got some context. Uh, But Charles Eisenstein, he's a speaker and writer focusing on the themes of human culture and identity. He's the author of several books, most recently Sacred Economics and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, and his newest book called Climate a new story. Uh, so he's so knowledgeable on, uh, you know, the, the situations that we find ourselves in the world today, the kind of environment that we're living in. And uh, that's kind of what we based our conversation around. You know, what are the events that are happening right now? What should we expect moving into the future? Uh, what, 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 what is the environment that we're moving through right now? And, uh, and seriously, it was such a pleasure to have a conversation with Charles, and I hope that we get to have him back many more times. Uh, but anyway, without any further ado, I present to you my interview with Charles Eisenstein. Um, you know, Charles, uh, you came at a really high recommendation from a couple of my, my listeners as well. And, um, and I know that we're going to have such an interesting discussion today because I've been, I've been really trying to listen to a lot of your stuff that you're putting out um, and pay attention to what you're saying. And there's so many parallels uh, between the, the kind of ideas that you're expressing, especially in our modern context, um, with kind of a lot of the ancient ideas that we study in philosophy, you know, and so obviously you've, uh, you know, you've studied philosophy a lot. Um, I believe you went to Yale, is that right? Yeah. Awesome. Actually, I might as well just hand it over to you, you know, like just introduce yourself, you know, tell me a little bit more about yourself and then we'll, we'll jump into a, a range of discussions because there's so much that I want to uh, touch on with you. Uh, I, I just describe myself as an author, mostly. I've written a few books um, and a lot of essays and I used to do a lot of public speaking. I guess now I'm still doing a lot of public speaking, but it's all via the internet. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did go to Yale um, in a former lifetime, studied mathematics and philosophy. But I, I, you know, I'm not like, I would not call myself a philosopher in the sense that most philosophers, like I'm, you know, academic philosopher, I'm not in that world really. Hmm. I, um, so I'm kind of curious to know what, uh, what I'm saying is uh, similar to ancient ideas. Mm. Well, yeah, we can definitely jump into that. Um, obviously, there's there's a big focus from what I've heard from you on on this idea of really trying to pay attention 
to whether it's this moment, your surroundings, what's happening right now. Um, you did describe yourself in one interview uh, as somebody who is paying attention to what's going on around here, right? And I kind of wanted to open it up to you from the start of this interview. Um, you know, with everything that's happening in the world right now, uh, what, what do you see? What's going on around here uh, from, from your eyes? It's a big question. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and I'm actually a little um, hesitant to answer that question simply because opinions now are so polarized and so politicized that if I just spill my guts and say what I think is going on here, I'm like, um, you know, am I going to be uh, ridiculed, shut down? Am I, or, or even more, it's not so much that as am I even going to be heard? Because at least I'm not sure where how it is where you are, but but here, uh, if you question lockdown or question the efficacy of masks or question um, the plan of staying locked down until we get a vaccine or uh, you know any any of these uh, anything that is counter to the what I'll call the official narrative. Hmm. then all of a sudden people are like, okay, so now I understand you are a Trump supporter. You are a right-wing conspiracy theorist. You are like, there are these, these categories of us versus them that are so uh, totalizing of our relationships now that the first, like the first suspicion is, are you on the other side? So let me listen to what you're saying and figure out if it's okay to listen to you which means, you know, figure out if it's okay if, if you're on my side. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, maybe we can ease into it a bit. Uh, and the other problem is that I think a lot of contradictory things at the same time, mm-hmm. even after obsessively following the situation for months, there's still some things I'm not really sure about, some things mm-hmm. that, that don't add up no matter which narrative I stand in. Um, so, yeah, as for what's going on here, um, I mean, I could say that we're being shown things about ourselves as a, as a society that were not obvious before. Hmm. Uh, I could elaborate on that, but maybe I'll pause there. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know what? I think, I think, uh, if there was one thing I could express to you, it's, it's that um, I'm so aligned with, uh, I, I've been really paying attention as well to what's happening at the moment. And, and that is one of the really kind of insidious kind of places which humanity has come to right now, which as you said, it's, it's like within the first few words of the sentence that you speak, somebody has made up their mind whether or not they want to listen to you or not, or whether you're on their team or not. And I think we need way more people to come out here and actually say, hey, listen, um, I'm not necessarily saying let's open everything up. I'm not necessarily saying let's stay in lockdown. There are a lot of things that we don't know. There's a lot of moving parts but you've spoken about this before this this need that humanity has to make sense of things which often gets in the way of us seeing that there's a lot of chaos that we have to deal with and we don't necessarily always have the answers 
Can you can you speak to that? Because I know that I know this is something yeah. that you're kind of interested in. Yeah. So I think it's a natural human function to want to make sense of things. Mm. That's how we operate. That's how mm. we create together. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making sense of things. However, a a um, an evolutionary trajectory that we go through as individuals and as a society is that at certain points, our sense-making fails us. And we face a situation that is beyond what we know how to understand, beyond the categories that we use to organize the world, beyond the roles that we've assigned to human beings, beyond the, what, what our mythology can explain. Those moments are, are watershed moments and they invite us. So, so they're very uncomfortable, whether it's personally, you know, your life falls apart, what does it mean? Uh, or, or the world falls apart or, or even on a social level, it's kind of happening right now. We are in unprecedented circumstances and the discomfort of being in that uncertainty and that unknowing pushes a lot of people to, to jump to some narrative, to some sense-making, even if it, you know, honestly doesn't uh, incorporate all of the data points and leaves, has huge gaps and stuff, it's more comfortable to be there than it is to be in the unknowing. So that's mm. why you see so many people offering that uh, sense-making um, comfort. The, the, and, and they include the, the orthodox people, the, the, the mainstream, and they also include conspiracy theories, which is a term that I want to preface by saying that um, I don't mean it as a term of dismissal or disparagement. Mm. It, conspiracy theory has become a smear that's used to just write off anything that disagrees with what I think uh, or what or especially what the conventional narrative is, the, mm -hmm. the mainstream narrative. In a way, if you believe anything different than what the authorities are telling you, it is kind of a conspiracy theory because if you're right and they're wrong, then why? Why are they either hiding the truth or ignorant of the truth? There must be, um, it doesn't have to be like a conscious conspiracy but systems organize themselves around a certain version of the truth and they keep out anything that doesn't fit in to that version of the truth. Hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, the, the, what we're seeing now is this discomfort with uncertainty and either then clinging all the more tightly to the old story or um, jumping to new ones that, that it's maybe a premature jump. So I, I would like to see us marinate some more in the unknowing, which isn't to say do nothing. Um, it's more that I'm a little distracted now because you disappeared for a little bit, but I'm so um, sorry. Yeah. You did pause, but I, I, I'm hopefully back now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know if that got recorded either, but Yep. Um, we, yeah. So, so, did record it. So, yeah. Okay. So, not to rush, not to rush to um, a solution that might be part of the problem. Like when we when we take urgent action, when we hurry, 
uh, when we act from a place of you can't just do nothing, rather than acting from a place of I know what to do. Mm. But when we act to alleviate the discomfort of the unknown and of not knowing what to do and just do something, often it's coming from the old story, the old understanding, and can even make things worse. So here with COVID-19, we're seeing uh, the authorities and the public alike doing what they already know how to do, which is to find something to control. Hmm. All of the responses are based on control. That's the comfort zone of our society. That's, that's almost defines our society, exercising control upon the world, upon each other. Um, that's defines modern medicine, agriculture, even like us foreign policy. Hmm. Um, It's so, yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, Without, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this gets into the controversial territory, but um, I think that it's actually counterproductive. And, you know, then I'm like, then like, well, you're not a doctor, Charles. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, here's, you know, a bunch of doctors saying that, and here's some research. And then someone else is saying, well, here's some other research that contradicts that. And, and you're contradicting the CDC, which represents the consensus. And I'm like, well, what about these doctors and scientists who challenge the consensus? And we get into the, what I call the, the battle the, the, of dueling studies. Hmm. And yeah, um, when those get politicized and are used to define in-group and out-group, no progress is possible. And maybe that is a bigger problem than one side getting it wrong. Yeah. Because what yeah, can our society accomplish when we're frozen? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, man, this is, this is such good stuff that you're offering here. And, and, you know, I really want to find out how we can, or how you think we can encourage people or show them the way towards being comfortable with the unknown. Because obviously we're very uncomfortable with the unknown. How, how, how do you encourage people to get there to be able to say, yeah, I don't know. And that that's okay, but I can, I can figure some things out. Well, maybe there's part of you that craves the unknown that has been feeling confined in the reality that you've been inhabiting and that's ready to go into the unknown and at the same time scared of the unknown at some point we we become curious about what we're scared about and and we actually seek out uh, experiences that scare us Hmm. because what scares us is also an opportunity to grow if it's in the unknown, if it's outside of the familiar controlled territory, then almost by definition, it's a growth opportunity. So I guess, um, so that's one thing, uh, which, which I'm not universally encouraging people to step into the unknown, but speaking to the part of them that might be ready to do that, to do so. Hmm. And then another thing is, I guess I'm asking the question to myself, what makes people feel safe in the face of danger? security comes from connection, comes from community, 
comes from being part of a group, comes from being embedded in a community, in a place, uh, to have lots of, of solid relationships, then you feel safe. Um, so maybe to, to help people feel safer, to enter the unknown, to engage their critical thinking, um, we just have to create safety. So that's actually the opposite of many of the strategies that people are using to try to change the mind of the other side, which is uh, psychological pressure, ridicule, shaming. Um, that doesn't make people feel safe. Hmm. It actually hardens people into their, their existing positions. And if they're seriously challenged and overcome temporarily by your superior facts and superior logic, what are they going to do? They're going to go running to somebody who holds the torch for their side and say, hey, Charles Eisenstein said this. Can you please refute that? And they will refute it. Uh, and ha, I was right all along. So that's, that's what I'm seeing an awful lot of. Uh, mm. that people are not actually, and it's not just in, with this issue, people are not, people do not make their, they do not choose their beliefs based on evidence or logic. It's kind of the opposite. We have these beliefs that we dress up in evidence and logic. Mm. So if you believe something and here comes a study that confirms it, oh yeah, you know, take that baby in. Here comes some talking head on TV who's echoing that, yeah, share, like. And then comes something that contradicts it. Like, you know, you've been telling everybody to wear masks and that they're immoral if they're not doing it and they're putting themselves and others at risk. And now here comes a news item saying, you know, such and such a doctor, you know, says masks are ineffective. And you'll be like, who is this guy? Is he really a doctor? Um, uh, what do, you know, what does it say about him on Wikipedia? And uh, let me find somebody who's refuting that. Like if it doesn't fit what you already believe, very likely you're going to subject it to intense scrutiny. Hmm. And maybe if you can't find any fault in it, it's like, okay, well, you know, um, so-and-so says the opposite. So, so, so this is important to understand if we want people in this world to change their beliefs, we cannot do it by force. Hmm. And when it seems that evidence and logic are working, it's probably because those beliefs were ready to change anyway. And so the defenses are, are down. Mm. And, and yeah, I guess underneath this, it, it's an invitation to relate to each other in solidarity rather than the domination conquest dynamic. Mm. Yeah. Going to overcome the bad beliefs by force just like overcome the virus by force. Yeah. Yeah. This, this culture that we seem to have embedded ourselves in of if we could just get rid of this group of people, if we could just get rid of that idea, this belief, whatever it is, you know, if I could just get rid of a B or C then, and only then humanity will be able to flourish and I'll be able to get what I want and, and my friends will be able to get what they want. And, 
man, it just, just doesn't work like that. Right. It, like the, and, and, and I know that you, you talk about this a lot because there's, there's a real importance of understanding that, um, you, you, you can't make anyone do anything by force. You can, you can try to embody, I guess. I, I want to categorize what you're saying correctly, but you can probably correct me if I say anything wrong, but you want to embody the changes that you want to see around you rather than trying to force them upon other people. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Um, I think that's part of it. Hmm. It's also a matter of, um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get involved in public issues yep. or uh, try to influence others. But I think that there are more effective ways to influence others than to try to overwhelm them. Hmm. Uh, and those other ways come from empathy, coming from understanding what it's like to be them, what their situation is, what are the conditions that have given rise to their beliefs and to their choices. And then maybe changing those conditions, being an agent of different conditions. Hmm. So for example, if say somebody is stingy or greedy, if you understand that the conditions of that, that give rise to that are insecurity and uh, an experience of being in an us versus them world where nobody's generous and where everybody's stingy and everyone's in it for themselves and kind of trying to get the best deal, then if you're extremely generous to that person, that is a data point that doesn't fit into the world of scarcity and control and mm. greed. Uh, or even uh, humor can be a counterpoint to the, the uh, kind of the, the, the oppositional each against all experience of life. Because humor says, actually, we're in this together. Let's laugh together. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a kind of a camaraderie in sharing a joke. Mm. And, and actually, humor is <clears throat> uh, when all else fails, we still have humor. That is like, it's maybe the first and last resort uh, in creating um, a human bond with somebody. Mm. Yeah. 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 Beautiful stuff. And, 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 you know, so much of this aligns with, um, with, with, I guess it's, it's all very philosophical in nature, especially when you take, take it and kind of like, uh, overlay it over the top of a lot of the things that the Stoics said, you know, for example, thinking of laughter, Seneca always said that, you know, it shows the lighter side of our spirit to be able to laugh at life than to bemoan it. Um, and, you know, they, you know, they talked about all of these principles that would help us to focus on what is really important, which is, you know, you don't control anything around you, you control your, your inner world. And so you can, if you can make your inner world beautiful, then you can, slowly start to influence those people around you who start to see the changes and and yeah it's it's not about you're right you know it's it's not about kind of removing yourself from society it's about trying to find the most effective approach for change and i i love what you said there um earlier about you know we kind of 
we have our beliefs and we kind of dress them up in logic and reason and all this sort of stuff. Did you ever have a moment in your life where you suddenly went from, actually, let me first say this, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of talk a lot about how we grow up and, and people are just throwing things at us. Like, believe this, believe that, believe this, this is the way to live. That's the way to live. And all of a sudden we get to, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old and, you know, we're basically a concoction of every belief and value structure of the people around us. Um, did you ever have a moment where you specifically noted that you broke out of that kind of those bounds of what other people wanted for you and you started to realize that you could start picking apart the logic that you had dressed yourself up with, the reasons that you'd dressed yourself up with, or was it kind of a slow burn over time? Um. I think it was kind of both. It was a slow burn with mm. some key catalyzing events. Um, mm. But yeah, the, the indoctrination is intense um, into the uh, conventional understanding of what's real and what life is supposed to be and how to be human and who you are. Um, and also to dependency on authorities to tell us that. Mm. That's in, in school, you get rewarded for producing the answers to, 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 for producing answers that are what authority says the answers are. Mm. Uh, and not so much training in critical thinking in school. It's mostly about producing correct answers. So, and, and in training our minds in certain ways uh, and not others, like certain human abilities, certain cognitive abilities are fostered and rewarded in school and other ones are discouraged, ignored, or even uh, repressed, uh, such as, you know, if you have uh, intuitive abilities, psychic abilities, uh, able to uh, uh, read emotional energy, um, you know, able to communicate with animals, like all of those abilities are they're they're not valued in school mm. so if you have those kinds of abilities and not the kind of abilities i had like i was good at memorization i was good at math and so everyone said i was smart like those abilities are only useful in a certain context and and there are people with amazing kinds of intelligence other kinds of intelligence that are told that they are stupid so anyway, so the, this, this kind of dependency is created in our educational system. And, and, and I don't want to say like that it's monolithic in that sense. Like there are amazing teachers who are doing their best to bring out the best in their students and, and encourage critical thinking and, 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 inf and inspire the students with their own passion for learning. Okay, this is not all bad. I mean, every institution is like this, actually. Every mm. institution has has amazing people who are going against the tide of their institution to try to do a good job. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I, I, I'm no, no different. I went through, through conventional schooling, uh, but there was always part of me that was like, this can't be right. I didn't have a lot of food for that, for that suspicion that, that there's gotta be more to reality than I'm, being told this can't be it. And, and that received nourishment 
first through um, politic through political readings, as I became aware of um, uh, radical left critiques of capitalism and colonialism and imperialism. I, I read uh, Howard Zinn. Uh, I read Wendell Berry. Um, you know, I, I read uh, uh, enough uh, left literature to confirm that, yeah, you know, like this, this glorious progress that we've been, that has been narrated to us in school, where, where civilization and reason and science and, and, and democracy are just making the world better and better. Like there's a problem here. There's a lot left out of that story. So I first became aware of that. Uh, and a lot of leftists kind of stopped there, actually. But then I, when I finished college, I went to Taiwan, where I lived for nine years. And um, I came face to face with, I'll call them experiences, data points that my education said were impossible. Mm. Uh, human abilities that could not exist in the version of reality that I had learned at Yale University. Um, uh, healing modalities, Chinese medicine, that was far superior in some things, at least. No, if you have burns over 90% of your body, if you're hemorrhaging blood and about to die, no, Chinese medicine is not better. But for a lot yeah. of things, far superior, mm. far superior to, to the Western medicine that I'd experienced and learned about. Um, and, and, and so I had experiences like that, that confirmed my suspicion that there's something that they haven't been telling us. There's whole realms of reality and possibility outside the official reality. Mm. And the other thing that happened is I, I began experimenting with psychedelics, which also confirmed there's a lot more to self and world than I've been told. We've been mm. living, I've grown up in a tiny narrow ghetto of the universe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, uh, you know, I wrote this essay recently about conspiracy theories. Um, I think that on one level, like, so I, I, I call them a myth. I call conspiracy theories myths, not to say that they are wrong, uh, but to say that they carry truths that don't depend on a literal interpretation of them. Hmm. One of those truths is what I was just saying, that there is a lot that we are not being told. I don't think that the conspiracy is um, necessarily like this conscious thing where there's this evil cabal of, of dastardly manipulators pulling the puppet strings, you know. Uh, but the basic truth of, of a much bigger reality operating behind the curtains, that is true. Mm. That is true. At least yeah. in my experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, of, of course. I, and and I, I agree. I think, I think that 
we, because of our tendency to need to say, I know something or this is true or that's true, that tendency obviously leads a lot of people down the road of conspiracy uh, where it should be a journey of trying to understand the very complex webs uh, of, 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 you know, the very complex layers of humanity. It ends up being, Oh, okay. I found another layer and I now know 100% that this is the layer that's true. And I'm going to spread that. And, and then a lot of people out there, you know, there's, it's just a constant battle of, of right or wrong. It's a constant battle of forcing this and forcing that where honestly, it's, there's so many conspiracies out there that, that if you just read them and you just say, no, it's completely wrong. I mean, there's like one or two little bits in there that you can at least say, okay, yeah, definitely that's true or that's true. And it's kind of ignorant to think that what we currently understand about society and the way that we live and what we're being told is the only thing that is right. Especially since what you said, you go to Taiwan and you experience a completely different world, a completely different way of being. And it, it opens your eyes to other ways of existence and something that you have talked about uh, a lot, which I I really resonate with um, is this idea that humanity at one stage in history was very much in touch with nature, um, was very much connected to nature and had that understanding there. And, you know, since, since a very young age, I remember having this very strong feeling that many of the problems that we face in the world today come as a direct result of, of our willingness to detach ourselves from nature and to imagine that we are separate from the world. Um, and then, you know, as soon as you're separate, it's kind of like, that's the other thing. And I'm this thing. And then you can force yourself on the other thing. How, how did you get this kind of understanding? What, what did you read? What are you learning from um, in order to kind of um, delve into the world of what we used to understand um, as, as a humanity? Oh, I don't remember. I read, you know, a fair amount of anthropology and, mm. um, uh, stories from, you know, indigenous cultures and stuff. And mm. it, it, I think that this, this knowledge though, that you're talking about is actually innate to everybody and it just mm. needs to be awakened. It doesn't even have to be awakened through reading anything. It can be awakened through a direct experience in nature where nature is speaking to you. And you can't prove to somebody who hasn't had that experience that it wasn't your own mind speaking to you and you're just making it up and, and projecting onto nature something that's actually an unintegrated part of your own psyche. Like you can't prove that. There's the other story, the, the, the modern materialist objectivist story um, can account for every data point actually. And the ones that it can't account for, it can say, well, that didn't happen. That was a hoax. That was fraud. Um, that was delusion. Um, it's just another example uh, that you cannot make somebody change through pre- presenting evidence because they can always question the evidence. They can always question mm. you as the presenter of the evidence. Um, you know, suppose I told you that uh, last year I witnessed a man take his finger and stick it into a concrete wall up to the first knuckle. 
mm. uh, and then pull it out again and the wall was totally smooth. How do you account for that in your worldview? Um, if you cannot explain it, actually it's easy to explain it. Charles must be lying. Or mm. there was some sleight of hand thing and, he, and Charles was tricked. Like you can account for anything. Even when I directly experienced things in Taiwan, I could say, well, you know, maybe that Qigong master who touched these points and maybe break into a profuse sweat and I felt like I was buzzing, you know, maybe he was, uh, maybe he snuck off and turned the heat up in the room and that's why I started sweating. And, you know, maybe I was just kind of bamboozled by him. Like I could maintain the worldview that I walked in there with. And when numerous people share stories, you know, again, back in those days, you know, of uh, encounters with ghosts or um, other phenomena that were uh, outside of my upbringing, I could have said, well, they're just trying to impress the foreigner, or they're just these superstitious, ignorant halfwits who haven't fully joined modern reason. Uh, and soon they'll be up to our level, though, because, you know, they're following our educational model, like something like that. Like I could have dismissed all of them too, but I was wary of doing that because of my political training, which was like, are you just gonna like impose another form of imperialism that says, I know better than you? Whereas economic imperialism is we live better than you and you should live like us. Epistemic imperialism would be we know better than you. The way we see the world is an advance over the way you see the world. That might have been uh, a, a defensible position coming 50 years ago if you were a relatively affluent person in Western society when it really looked like we were on the verge of, of conquering nature and creating a perfect technological society. You know, we were gonna conquer all the diseases and we were gonna have space colonies and robot servants. And I mean, you know, life was gonna be awesome in the future. But today it doesn't look like we're doing such a good job here. Mm. Does it? I mean, mm. look at the ecology, look at our politics, look at the state of health in the developed countries, worse than it was 30 years ago, worse. So it's getting harder for us to say, yeah, we know better than the superstitious Taiwanese knew in 1989. We know better than the African villagers, you know, and the uh, Amazonian uh, indigenous people and progress in this world will come from us imposing our knowledge onto them, educating them. Let's go in there and build some schools. Hmm. Yes. That, that, that's, that's what the philanthropist does. Maybe we have to start learning from them. Maybe hmm. this suspicion that there's something we haven't been told that, that, that thirst then to find that thing, maybe some of that knowledge is held outside of our culture. And this can seem quite theoretical, but now we come to COVID-19 where 
all of the things that are outside of the narrowest conventional reality are abandoned. 30, 40 years of holistic and alternative medicine, gone, non-essential. I don't hear the WHO touting uh, meditation, uh, mm. which increases immunity. Or I was on uh, a thread with this doctor who practice, practices EFT, the tapping, you know? Mm, yeah. um, and he's like, I know studies, like scientific studies that show that this increases immunoglobin levels by 110%, uh, mm. which is a primary defense against coronaviruses because the Y-shaped immunoglobin, whatever, whatever it is, uh, adheres to the spike proteins of the coronavirus and neutralizes it. And it says, if we had a pharmaceutical drug that gave 110% increase in immunoglobin levels, it would be a blockbuster. Mm. It, would be, it would be patented and promoted and marketed and spread far and wide with the full uh, uh, eager uh, cooperation of the WHO. Mm. But EFT, uh, did you see that on the CDC website? on the NIH website on the, is, is the government of New Zealand promoting that? Mm. Or are they suppressing it? Or, and all of the rest of the corpus of, of alternative medicine. So, so yeah, so we're seeing um, society and our authorities going in the opposite direction of where I think, I think that we should be going, but maybe that's a mm. stage. Maybe you have to, when, when, you're trapped in your hut and the doors are flung open. You cower into the corner even farther. Mm. Maybe that's what we're doing. But then like we're sitting there and like, you know, this isn't so great. And we start to peek out the windows and maybe we want to venture outside because there mm. is a big world out there beyond lockdown, beyond fear, beyond this, this hysteria. I mean, not that there isn't a disease happening, but Given the actual threat, the actual death count, um, I agree with those doctors and scientists who say that um, we've not responded in the right way to it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are certainly really interesting times that we're living in. And, you know, you kind of, when you discuss this idea of like, you know, what is progress? We think that we keep on moving forward, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of markers that you could look at that show us that we're really not making progress. I mean, I tend to think that it comes down to the kind of games that you're playing, right? It's, it's like, if you're playing one game, then sure, you're making progress in that game, but this culture is playing a different game and this person's playing a different game and, and this company's playing a different game. And so there are so many different ways to measure progress and, especially when you look at it within the confines of our own culture. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a tendency for the culture to really lock itself inside itself and to, as you kind of say, not let any new ideas in and try to you know, not let anything out. And this is what we are. And it, it, it's, it's upon us that the, the, the necessity is upon us to break outside of that. And as you say, we're in the corner now. What, what I'm really hoping is that as a lot of people are in that corner where they're kind of thinking, oh, I don't really like this, I'm hoping that what we see is that a lot of people after this, when we all open up again, will choose 
to move in the direction, not simply of being a cog in the wheel of society, but to pursue maybe those hobbies, those talents that they had taken on during their time in lockdown, to listen to the things that they are drawn to and are interested in, which I really think is the first step towards living in agreement with nature. It's like, listen to yourself. What are you interested in? What do you think you could bring to the world? And you've talked about the fact that we're kind of in this strange period right now. I think you called it the space between stories or the space between mm-hmm. myths. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Cause I really think that right now we're in a critical point in humanity's history where, you know, it, I think that the governments are going to stay pretty much the same, but I think the people are really about to undergo a massive shift um, over the next yeah. few years. Maybe I'll, I'll start by just uh, picking on one sentence that you said, not Please, to be yeah. like the word police, but when you said when, when things open up again, hmm. um, I don't think that that's an inevitability. I think that's something that we, the people have to claim hmm. because the authorities um, it's not that they're control freaks, like by temperament necessarily, but it's that they live in an, a worldview in which progress means exercising more and more control over the world. If you are administering the system and you know that you're doing it for the good, like you, you, you're a good person and you want people to be happy and you want society to work, and here's a new tool that you have. Uh, contact tracing and a new tool. Let's let's um, make sure that we can monitor the location of every person and every financial tra- transaction at all times and the whereabouts of each thing in the internet of things. Uh, and, and we have all of this data and then we can efficiently administer society. Like, of course you're going to want that. Mm. So to, 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 move in another direction requires an exercise of public will. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, there'll be some relaxing, but it's just like after 9-11 in the U.S., where a state of emergency was declared and never lifted. We're still Mm. in that state of emergency. Um, When new controls are implemented, they're rarely scaled back all the way. When I was a kid, Schools were public places. Any resident could go in and out of a school at any time. Uh, and now they're you know, surrounded by razor wire sometimes. All the doors are locked. Uh, there's surveillance cameras and metal detectors, you know, and like, and that's kind of considered progress. No one's saying that's a temporary measure until finally, but is that the society that we want where we're all locked down? It depends on, on what you value. And if you value safety above all else, above freedom, above play, above challenge, above sociality, um, if it's more important to be free than to have weddings hmm. that you go to, or funerals, or dance parties, festivals, then yeah, lockdown should be permanent. But if we want to assert other values, because the values of authority tend to be those that validate control, we're going to have to exert our will. So I wouldn't take it as an inevitability that Mm. lockdown will ever end fully. Um, 
So yeah, that said, and maybe this is related actually, um, because that's the natural mindset of government. They like control also in all societies. Mm -hmm. um, but the people, um, I do think you're right that we are going through a evolution of our consciousness. Control on a deeper level. So it's not just that, you know, authority likes the things that validate authority, um, but on a deeper level, um, if, if this is the, the, the bedrock mythology of our civilization, I call it the story of separation, which says you are a separate individual in a world of other, that mm. there's no intelligence outside of you. It's just this random melee of force and mass and natural forces could victimize you at any time. And the wild beasts could victimize you at any time, uh, bad weather or parasites or germs uh, or other people. So if you want to be, if you want to thrive, you have to insulate yourself from all of those predators and competitors and natural forces or dominate them, harness them to your interests. That's what progress is. Hmm. So, so as long as we understand ourselves as separate from each other and separate from nature, control will always be a high aspiration. That consciousness of separation, that story, that mythology is falling apart. Uh, or we are ready to transition out of that into a, and this is what I would call a new story, but it's also an ancient story of interbeing, where the self is no longer separate, where we understand that we are the totality of our relationships mm. and that the world and self are intimately connected. Nothing as simple as your beliefs create your reality or anything like that. But yeah, there is a mysterious connection between belief and reality between inner and outer, between self and other, between humans and nature, we're not really separate. So it's on a, on a personal level, but also a species level, not mm. separate from nature. In that consciousness of interbeing, we know that what we do to nature will happen to us too, in some form. If we destroy the whales and they all go extinct, doesn't necessarily mean that humans go extinct but it does mean that something in us has died. Hmm. When there are people in the world who are in extreme poverty, that doesn't mean that someday you'll suffer the karma consequences by going into extreme poverty yourself. But it means that you cannot actually be wealthy. If you're always having to maintain this tension of an imbalance in wealth, how can you be wealthy then? Hmm. You can only be wealthy when everyone around you is wealthy. And there, therefore, everybody is generous. That's wealth. Hmm. Um, you, can only, you cannot be safe. Another example, you, in, in the mindset of interbeing, you know that you cannot be safe by just uh, visiting violence upon other people and walling them out behind your gates and your, and your border fences and things. Even if you successfully keep them out, you're not going to be safe from domestic violence, or from violence on yourself. 
So this is the new, new and, and ancient story, interbeing. And so you mentioned the space between stories. That's the passageway between these, where mm. the old one is dissolving, the new one hasn't formed yet, and we don't have a story. We don't have a mythology. We don't have a way of making sense of the world. We don't have a way to make sense of ourselves, to know ourselves. Society told us who we were and how to live, and that doesn't work anymore. And no one's telling us anything new now. Uh, mm. that, that's, that's the place where we're just starting to tiptoe into as a society and then pulling back again into the old story. And then that's even less comfortable than it was before. And so we tiptoe forward again. And, and at some point, we won't be able to go back. Mm. Um, this is the initiatory process we're in. And I'm not saying it's guaranteed that we'll make it through. Maybe we can double down. Maybe we can double down on separation and take it to even further extremes. And if, and I wrote a book on climate and I, I mentioned that possibility, a concrete world, you know, carbon sucking machines and geoengineering and bubble cities and food mm. grown in vats. Like maybe we could go there but we don't have to. And if we don't want to, we need to nourish the parts in ourselves and each other that yearn for a future of more and more life, not more and more control. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I just think that it's, it's such a, if you're paying attention, there's so much to look at at the moment there's so many moving parts. There's so many people who are changing. There's, you know, movements of people who are really wanting the world to be a different way. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a real balancing act, right? Cause we want to, we want to be in a, in a new way of being, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who don't want that. There's a lot of people who want to continue their march to more stuff, more money, more control, more power, and, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel as though there's a real importance in understanding your own capacity to be that exact person who you dislike, who you don't want in the world. Right. Yeah. Right. Why, why do they want that? Is it true it's, that it's they actually clear. want that? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like what part of you wants more power, more money, more control? Hmm. Um, and here's the important question. What kinds of information and experiences loosen the hold of that part of you and nourish the part of you that doesn't need all of that, that is altruistic and selfless and generous? Like to actually uh, pursue that inquiry rather than castigating the greedy people or those that we perceive as they'll never change. They are just wanting more power and control. Like why are they just bad? Were they just born bad? Look at them at his, at, look at their baby pictures. Hmm. If you have a chance to do that. I saw a, a baby picture of Donald Trump one time. He was a cutums. Hmm. I thought, what happened to that man? You know, and I'm not like, 
super, super anti-Trump. I mean, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but you know, I don't think he's the devil incarnate, but he's definitely, um, well, I'm not gonna characterize him, but I will say whatever you think of him, and especially if you detest him, uh, take a look at his baby picture and then ask what happened to that man? Hmm. Or take a look at the baby picture of, of the worst criminal you can think of. And okay, maybe there are some people who are just like born psychopaths. Um, but if so, they're not very many. And most of, and, and that's another epithet that is, that is directed at people to basically say you're just evil. Um, so yeah, so what makes somebody power hungry? Because actually it doesn't do them any good. Someday they're going to be on their deathbed. And the only thing remaining to them in their last few breaths are, is those last few breaths. The, their money isn't going to help them. Their power isn't going to help them. Their fame, their prestige, their status, nothing will matter. The, the positive image they created for themselves, nope, useless. In those dying moments, useless. So to the extent that we are pursuing power and money more than we actually need, we're in the throes of a delusion. It doesn't, even if you're totally selfish, it doesn't do you any good. So I, 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 I think that part of the circumstances that engenders greed and power, hunger, uh, is the denial of death, is living in a culture that, that pretends that you don't have to die. Mm. If, you, if you thought that you didn't have to die, then endlessly accruing more and more wealth would make sense. <laughs> but if you know that you're going to die, then it doesn't make sense anymore. So I think mm. part of the healing of greed and selfishness and power hunger in our, in our society is to face us with the reality of death. And one reason to take it another level down, one reason that we deny death is because of our disconnection from our full relational being from community, from nature, that makes us alone here. That makes death a lot more scary. If mm. you experience yourself as a separate self, then death is the end of all things. But if you experience yourself as a re relational self, then you can't really die. And in those dying moments, all of the things that you've put out into the world beyond that separate self, the ways that you've enriched the world, the generosity that you've spread around, the beautiful things that you've created uh, as, a, as a sacrament to the world. Uh, like any, any act of beauty is a gift actually to the mm. world. Um, it might incidentally do you some good, but it is an offering. All of those things, they outlive you. So, the, the death means something different and and 
those in like paradoxically it's in those moments like those are the things that are going to make you feel good that 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 is what wealth becomes mm. when all else is lost it becomes what you've given mm. you can only keep it if you've given it away and you know we could speculate about the afterlife as well but um again it's the wealth that you've given away that you can take with you they say you can't take it with you but if for example if you believe in reincarnation then the world that you're born into is the one that has been enriched by your generosity so it'll be mm. a better world and you could um translate this into christianity too jesus talked about that laying up treasures in heaven what does that mm. mean you know it's it's not like if an esoteric understanding of Christianity does not posit heaven as something totally unrelated to earth. Um, there is this phrase, laying up treasures in heaven. So that, that understanding of interbeing is in both Eastern religion and Western religion. It's just a little bit more deeply coded in Western religion, but it's definitely there and it's, it's intuitive too. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an important one. Hey, and that, I think that's the best way I've heard it put. That it's 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 here in Western culture and in in our religion, it's just deeply coded. Because I've only recently, you know, I I grew up as a Mormon and I I took it seriously and I believed, you know, it probably should have focused more on the learning as opposed to just the blind faith. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of moved away from the church and, and I still, uh, don't, don't align myself with any major religion. However, uh, the psychological benefits of the words written in, in the Bible are now kind of popping out to me. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I don't need to belong to this. Maybe there is no such thing, but there's definitely no such thing as like the ultimate true church, you know, but, um, but th the value of some of the phrases, the stories, these ancient cycles of humanity that are expressed in this book, unbelievable. And I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to ask maybe one more question of you. Uh, and, and this will be a kind of a, um, a strange moment for myself on the podcast, because I've never discussed this with anyone on the podcast, but you talked earlier about your experience. Um, well, you just touched on it with uh, psychedelics. Um, would you be willing to uh, share the significance of that moment in your life uh, or what, what that experience, uh, you know, it, I guess led you to? Uh, yeah. Uh, as the cliche says, you really can't put it into words. Yeah. Um, but I said it already. It just gave, it gave me direct confirmation that self and reality and mind were much bigger and more mysterious than I'd been told. And, you know, I've, I'm not like any big time psychonaut, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's not my chosen path. Um, they've been an occasional visitor into my life. Uh, and, 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 but I, I think that they are important medicines for, for our culture. Otherwise that that um, I called it a suspicion and, and, and that yearning uh, for, to, to discover what it is outside of the confines of reality as we've been told it. 
will not get met. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, and, and that yearning attracts the medicines to us. Medicines, if you want to really go animistic, you know, and see them as beings, then just like you and me, they're attracted to opportunities to give their gifts. So our, the need of our society wanting to break free of its bonds, uh, which is, is an evolutive process, you know, like you grow within your confines and, and within your womb, and it's fine. Mm. And the womb is all nourishing, all protective. And then at some point, what was once protective becomes confining. And that has been this, the, the, the stage of civilization for the last, you know, growingly the last 50 years uh, in more and more intense confinement without um, any view of how we are going to get out of our predicament. So, mm -hmm. so the sign of the times is despair, despondency, burnout, hopelessness. Because we're like a fetus in a womb that's starting to undergo contractions, but the cervix hasn't opened yet. Hmm. When the, the, the opening of the cervix corresponds to, you actually see that there is another world out there. Light is coming in from a, another world. And the ordeal intensifies, but it's not hopeless anymore. You know you're being birthed towards something. So I think that the psychedelics are part of the opening of the cervix. Hmm. That, that show us that there is a bigger world out there. And it's not mm. just the psychedelics. It's also um, what we are learning from long buried or uh, remote traditions, like indigenous traditions, like the traditions of China and India, you know, that are also um, coming back to tell us, yeah, it, it's, it's bigger than you thought. And, and mm. from within science too, like, like we're getting more and more, but, but the psychedelics are important. They're an important um, member of this tribe of medicines mm. that are, are inviting us beyond the confines of what we thought was real. Mm. Yeah, and <clears throat> I was actually gonna ask this question earlier, but I wasn't sure how to phrase it. You may have done it there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but are you kind of saying that you feel as though, let me phrase it like this. I, uh, in, in my own understanding of, of psychedelics have, have come to kind of almost imagine that they tend to pop up from time to time in humanity or our awareness of them tends to pop up from time to time, just enough to, to wake us up a little bit. You know, it's, it's like you see the, the, you know, reemergence of them back in the, you know, in the sixties and seventies. And it's like, they've, they've always been here but they just had a boom back then when there was a strange time in humanity. And then obviously the people in power took over and shut that whole party down. And then they're kind of popping up from the early two thousands when we've got the internet age now, and there's a lot of people confused about what's real, what's not. Do you think they, uh, they, do you think that we find them in our moments of greatest need? Uh, yeah, or maybe it's more like they find us in our moments of greatest need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I would say, mm. um, yeah, individually that might be true, and also culturally. Mm. 
Yeah. And yeah. It, it's, it's interesting stuff. I think we're, we're living in such a, such a crazy time where there's so many great advancements happening. And I know that you've spoken with people like uh, Rupert Sheldrake and um, you know, these, these incredible people who are kind of really pushing the boundaries of science. Uh, I, I'd love to hear your opinion, just final question, um, you know, with your experience in, in psychedelics, but what do you think, how, how available should this stuff be to people? Anything can lead you down an egotistical road. Mm. If you make a possession of the experience, mm. same thing with religious experiences, mystical experiences, your, your wonderful communion with nature that you had that time. And now you're telling everybody about it like that, you know, all of those things can be made into spiritual possessions. Psychedelics are no different. Mm. Um, they are an offering, they're a possibility, but they're not going to do all of the work for you. So I think they're a valuable medicine again, and medicines can also be misused. Mm. Yeah. And some of these medicines, maybe we don't really know how to use them. There are cultures that have stewarded some of the medicines and do know how to use them, but even their use is specific to their context. Mm. Um, so overall, you know, I tend to err on the side of incaution, of mm. not being too cautious. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what society should exactly do. I tend mm. to like to like to there be there to be freedom and room to explore and to make mistakes. Uh, and I guess if I were the government, I would. Um, allow that free exploration and set up systems uh, through which people could learn from each other. Mm. Um, that would be my role. Yeah. 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 Well, look, Charles, I really appreciate uh, your willingness to share in this conversation today. Uh, we've had obviously a few uh, technical glitches, but man, it's been so wonderful and, and, and I, I appreciate the wisdom that you share. So um, I'm going to put, all of the links to where people can find everything that you're doing online and your books and everything in the show notes. But um, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, and you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one -on -one together with my alignment coaching based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time.